in a manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word, episode number 28, May 2020, Russian language and accents, a conversation with Professor Curtis Ford. Hello and welcome to Paul My Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. When I spoke to you last, the COVID-19 lockdown was a fresh development, at least here in the U.S., Now, a month later, with some hope on the horizon, I can comment on some of the ways people in my field have been coping. I've been doing a lot more Zoom sessions with housebound actors unable to go to work. But one of the most inventive projects has been from Lawrence University in Wisconsin. Kathy Privet, a theatre professor there, with the balance of their theatre season cancelled, and her students, dispersed all over the world, gathered them together via Zoom to do a radio drama. She chose a play first done by the National Youth Administration in 1937, when America's Public Works Administration was putting artists back to work following the Great Depression. I've been working with the cast on their dialects and radio drama techniques. It's been a joy, not least because radio drama is how I got my professional start as an actor, with the BBC Drama Repertory Company, the Rep, as we called it. I can't wait to tell you how the Lawrence University project turns out. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Okay, I want to tell a little story about a vacation I went on. It goes back like 25 years ago. And myself, my sister, and four other friends, we took a trip to uh, Ireland. If you guessed Newfoundland, Canada, you've got to be from Newfoundland or spent some time there. Congratulations. It was Ideas Newfoundland 4, submitted by Ideas Senior Editor Eric Armstrong. The subject was born and raised in Calvert, Newfoundland. I'm sure you can hear the history of Irish immigration to that province. To hear the whole recording, just search for Newfoundland 4 at dialectsarchive.com. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Um, I was always interested in acting. I would do that throughout school and um, do productions and stuff like that. And then uh, got sort of more heavily into music when I started playing guitar when I was 15 and started singing. And um, I mean, those became really my main focus and my... Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Dr. Curtis Ford, whom I count as a good friend and colleague, though in this virtually connected world we live in, we've never met in person. Dr. Curtis Ford. Kurt, we've been friends a long, long time. I forget how many years it is since you approached me about turning my dialect manuals into e-books. Do you remember how long ago that was? It must have been at least seven or eight years ago, something like that. And what was it that prompted you to reach out to me for that project? Uh, At the time I was uh, teaching full-time, I was on the faculty of the University of South Carolina teaching uh, Russian and uh, linguistics there. And I had the habit at the end of an academic year, when I'd survived another year, I would give myself a treat, uh, usually some kind of book. And the the treat I uh, got for myself that year was um, your complete set of dialect materials, which at that point were still coming out on on CDs in that big spiral-bound book. (laughs) 
um, because it involved uh, languages and accents, which I've always been fascinated with, but also was just something kind of different, something fun from a different angle of, of, of learning dialects. So I got those materials and had a lot of fun playing with them. But then I also found myself thinking it would be so much uh, easier. It'd be really convenient if these were available in a digital format as yeah. well as on the CDs. Yeah. So I thought, well, it couldn't help to just send him an email and see what happens. And it's turned out very, very well. It sure has. And thank you so much for reaching out to me all those years ago. And how did, in addition to your linguistic skills, your language teaching skills and your work as a professor, how did you actually get so proficient with the technology? That's always been a, a side interest since about the time I was considering going back to graduate school. That was going back uh, to the 1990s, uh, the first multimedia computers, as we call them then, were coming out. And the first time I saw one, I thought, oh, would this be a great tool for developing language learning tools? Something a little bit less awkward than the, the cassettes that were all we had when I was um, an undergraduate. So what year would that have been? Uh, let's see, that would have been the early to mid-90s. I think I went back to yeah. to start working on the PhD in 1995 almost, or 1996. Almost exactly the same year that the internet matured to the point where I could <laughs> open an internet business with this kind of multimedia hmm. material and, and, and could, was starting to think about founding the International Dialects of English Archive, for example. Yeah, yeah. so there's kind of a, a parallel development there. I mean, yeah. both of us coming from a language background and thinking about dialects and accents and yeah. uh, teaching and then wanting to find new ways to get our material out there to an audience. Yeah. I think if I hadn't become an actor and gone that route, I would have certainly become a linguist. But as, <laughs> it, as it is, I gravitated in the theater and the film world to the, the language end of things and the dialect end mm -hmm. of things. So I got to combine them. I combined my two first loves, I think. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your professional life path. You've told me a little about that, but you're a speaker of many languages. Give us a quick resume uh, of your language skills. So I studied Russian as an undergraduate and later went on for an MA and a PhD in Slavic linguistics. I had a fair amount of German as an undergrad. I love to travel and I'm fascinated with the process of language learning. I've dabbled in another, uh, a number of other ones. In school, I had some Czech, some Serbo-Croatian. Uh, I've dabbled in Dutch and Finnish. Uh, and in part because of family background, I had a fascination with Irish Gaelic that developed ah. a couple of years ago. I really enjoyed getting it, well, to a lower intermediate level with that language. Amazing. So you have lots to teach a dialect coach. And, um, do, do, you inter do you interact with film and theater dialect coaches or actors doing dialects? I don't know if uh, I've ever asked you that question. I actually know other than you. <laughs> As the uh, CEO and founder of American Voices, you are a, a sponsor of IDEA. We have your little link on the right-hand side of every IDEA page, taking us yes, to American Voices. That. Tell us about American Voices, why you started it and what, what mission it has. It's part of my interest in finding new ways to help people learn languages. Uh, I'm sometimes skeptical of approaches that, that promise too much. I think it's often better to have a very specific goal in mind. And the specific idea behind American Voices is to help learners of English who are already at an intermediate or advanced level to improve their listening skills. Because mm -hmm. I think most of us have had the experience of, of taking a language for a couple of years and then going to the country where it's spoken and finding that it's, it's still really difficult to understand. Mm 
unscripted, spontaneous speech from native speakers, specific skill set that often doesn't come up uh, in the typical language classroom. So working with PRX, Public Radio Exchange, I've found a way to license excellent podcasts, excellent audio storytelling that is more interesting, more professionally produced than what you would typically find in a language textbook. And I've put that together with annotated materials to make it more accessible to the intermediate or advanced language learner who wants to listen to something really interesting, but just isn't quite ready to get there without a little help. Let's play one of the stories. You said that uh, this, this little clip here, tell us, set up this one. It's called Reunion. Set that Reunion up is one of my um, favorites. It is the story of a reunion between a mother and the son who she had had to give up for adoption about 20 years before. And I looked at him and I said, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. And he pulled me into a hug and he said, yeah, I thought you needed to know that. It's just, you have no idea what it's like to be voluntarily hugged by the child you gave away. Well, that's very touching. Mm-hmm. So these are the yes. oral hist- these are oral histories and uh, just great anecdotes as well as being good language teaching tools, right? Yes, it's all authentic materials, uh, meaning that these are things that were developed not for the sake of teaching a language, but just mm-hmm. by one native speaker for another native speaker. But that makes them, I think, often more compelling than what we normally find in the in the textbooks. And what other projects uh, are you engaged in at the moment? Going back to the uh, Russian materials, uh, for several years now, I've had a YouTube channel that specializes in the the tricky bits of Russian grammar with short, clear videos that would help students typically if they're taking a class and panicking about one or another grammar point and they can go to the YouTube channel, the Russian grammar channel, and mm. get a nice clear explanation to soothe their nerves. Hmm. Uh, so I've got about a hundred... Uh, 120 videos on that channel. And then in view of the current crisis of COVID-19 and schools having to close down and move uh, very quickly to an online basis, I'm expanding my offerings of online courses uh, that could be integrated into other courses taught by professors now in an online format. That's great. You and I talked briefly before we started this about how not to teach foreign languages. I think you have one or two <laughs> yes. cherished points to make about, about that topic. I know, I know that I was taught as a kid just in the worst possible way, and I learned what little French survives despite my French teacher, I think, not because uh-huh. of him. Was there a heavy emphasis on uh, grammar? Oh, yeah, endless that... declensions of verbs and grammar yes. and... Uh, mm-hmm. we. I, I I was totally unable to speak French to a French person, mm-hmm. despite four years of the of the of the mm-hmm. subject in an English high school. Yes, I I can relate to that. When I started Russian back in the late seventies, uh, early eighties, we had a lot of grammar. Uh, I did very well on my tests, and the first time I was in Russia after about three years of study, I felt completely overwhelmed by the the flood of speech that was coming into my ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the profession has made good progress in the last couple of decades towards uh, getting a better balance of a grammar-based approach with communicative approaches. Talking about communicative language learning is certainly very fashionable now uh, nowadays. Uh, and that's been an important corrective 
Though, on the other hand, I think for a language like Russian with a fairly complex grammar that's fairly different from English, it is important to still give some grounding in the grammar, some structure that you can then hang the communicative approach on or wrap it around. Is it just easier to test a command of grammar than it is to test the communication skill? Is that part of it, do you think? I think that's part of it. Um, As well, going back to the the 70s and 80s, um, the technology was not there for as much communicative materials. We couldn't just go over to the computer and, and watch a movie or listen to the radio. It was much harder to just get access to authentic native speech. Mm. Uh, and it was easier to test. I've always enjoyed combining teaching actors accents and dialects with helping foreign language speakers master British or American pronunciation. So let's get into teaching actors Russian accents uh, versus teaching a Russian, an American, or British mm-hmm. accent. What, sure. what, what do you have to say on that topic? I think you're right. We're essentially dealing with the same material, but coming at it from different directions. So when you help an actor with a Russian accent, you obviously need to talk about the Russian sound system. And I would do that as well for my students. And the inventory of their phonemes, etc. Yes, we have to describe the Russian sounds. Uh, it's often helpful to contrast them with uh, English sounds. It's often important to highlight sounds that exist in Russian that don't exist in English, or especially contrasts that exist in the Russian sound system that don't exist in English. The phonological minimal pairs that we just can't hear. I'm sure you could come Mm -hmm. up with a a minimal pair in Russian that I simply wouldn't hear the difference between the two, but they have different meanings. Can you come up with a minimal pair? In, in Russian that I sit, that most, most English speakers wouldn't be able to hear the difference? Um, sure. Let me give you one here, and I'll, I'll be interested to hear what your, what your reaction is, what you do or don't perceive. It's two very quick words. I'll say them a couple of times. Sat. Set. Sat. Set. Yes. I, so I, I'm interested in what, what you, what yeah. contrast think, you do or don't you? Yeah, sat and set. And and when I teach a Russian accent in my in my book a Russian mm-hmm. a Russian accent, I would be dealing with the what we call the trap set words in that mm-hmm. family trap and marry and carriage and mm-hmm. my encouragement you tell me which is best is to go either side of our a vowel which doesn't exist in Russian we have no a vowel in Russian as I understand it but they have a and the e right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you've picked up um, nicely on the vowel contrast, which interestingly is something that might come up at a slightly more advanced level of Russian. There was also a contrast in the consonants, if I was oh, getting I, it right. I was, I, was listening, I was listening for the vowels only. Give, it, give me the yes. consonants again. Sure. Sat, set. Oh, I hear Sat, now. There's, there's a palatalization of the S, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the uh, most distinct features of, of Russian, the great distinguishing features of Russian for, versus English. Uh, most Russian consonants come in pairs, hard and soft or unpalatalized and palatalized, basically not to get too involved in the terminology. For some consonants, you raise your tongue up towards the roof of your mouth. And others, it's relatively lower. Uh, in your mouth. And that makes a difference. It's a very uh, important difference in the Russian sound system. And does that, uh, and does that happen in particular when followed by particular vowels or, and, and 
other vows that followed that doesn't happen or, or, or I'm thinking of my encouragement. I sometimes hear Russians say it's a many, a word like many, they might say many, they would slightly paralyze that M is, am I just way off base with that or? You're not off base at all with that. It's, I think that's exactly what you would hear. And there's a very good reason uh, because in the Russian sound system, uh, before the E vowel, nearly all consonants will be palatalized, softened. So it's very typical to hear mini, mini. Mini. Right. So my tongue is rather high in my mouth as I articulate the M, and, and certainly with the N as well. Mini, mini. Yes. That's a relatively subtle feature that many English speaking actors would forego mm-hmm. in favor of the more obvious quote unquote mistakes that a Russian makes in you know the, the mm-hmm. you know he, he has his head on his on his head you know they hear the yes. uh-huh. they hear they hear the uh, the mangling of the h that the beginning That's Russian right. speaker does but they they don't hear that palatalization so clearly perhaps yeah right and the palatalization does have an effect on the vowels which was the the first thing you picked up on um so the first word sat means an orchard or garden and that had non-palatalized consonants with the a vowel in between but when you palatalize them to get s and uh in the second example it does change the quality of the vowel a little bit that's a kind of the subtlety that we might get to in second or third year russian um and it's interesting that with your actors and dialect coaches ear that was the first thing you picked up on that's certainly a relevant feature though as well and what does sit mean? Oh, sit means uh, sit down. I think I was too gross in my pronunciation. I, I said sit. That's just, just not mm-hmm. right. It is. I, it's called sit. Sit. Uh-huh. That's yeah. typically one of the challenges for an English speaker learning Russian where we, on some level, we perceive the palatalization, uh, but we're not sure how to pronounce it. And so we insert a Y, kind of a distinct Y sound. Yeah. Um, other right. classic I, example would be the Russian word for no, which is just niet, niet. Yeah. And we yes. write it N-Y-E-T. When in yeah. fact, it's really just three sounds in Russian. Niet, the niet. highly palatalized niet and an S sound, niet. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we, and we have a similar model in English. We will say, we would say, um, moose but music so we have the little mm. year the little mm-hmm. yard sound that we we're familiar with but it's not we don't have that simultaneous palatalization exactly. of okay in addition to that those pairs of palatalized and unpalatalized consonants what other difficult features of russian are there for an english learner of russian and, and, oh. and at the same time you know which would be the difficult ones for an english speaking mm-hmm. actor to do in a russian accent mm. Uh, well, one thing that uh, is not necessarily difficult to pronounce, but is a significant feature, and it's worth calling people's attention to, um, is the treatment of consonants at the end of the word. You may have noticed how sometimes Russian last names are spelled with an O-V at the end, and occasionally they're spelled O-F-F. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a reason for that, and it's because at the end of a word, voiced consonants, where you are using your vocal cords in Russian are pronounced as unvoiced. Yes. So, the, so which, the, which is why Russian would say instead of Bob's big dog is dead, it would be Bob's mm-hmm. big dog is dead or something like that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, why the word have would be pronounced as hif. Mm-hmm. 
something like this. So that OV spelling reflects the Russian spelling and the OFF transliteration reflects the, the way Russians typically would pronounce it. Mm-hmm. So that would be a good feature for an English-speaking actor to work into their Russian accent. And conversely, for a Russian-speaking English, it's a barrier that they have to be aware of and overcome uh, so it's not to have a Russian accent in their English. They have to take care to try and go ahead and keep voicing those consonants even at the end of the word. And, and of course, if they're coming to uh, American English, where often those final consonants are just swallowed, if the word is dead, mm-hmm. you, know, obvious, you know, many American speakers in, in many contexts wouldn't say dead, but just dead with an, mm-hmm. unre- with an unreleased sound. And that's that's a subtlety too, isn't it, for, for the Russian learning English? It is. I think it's, it's often a, a feature of foreign accents that um, a learner of English will be rather self-conscious about their English, and so they may be trying quite hard and almost trying too hard to articulate everything correctly, and so they will miss those subtleties like an unreleased T or D at the end of the word that could make their English sound more natural, yes. but they're trying so hard to get that D or that T in just the right spot that it it calls attention to itself. Yes. And, and in fact, if I've only got uh, 30 seconds to coach an actor, say I'm on a movie set and mm. there's a day player come in to speak a couple of lines and uh, he or she was only cast the night before. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I've got 30 seconds or to, to make them pass credibly as, as a foreign language speaker. Often I will just go for the hyper correctness. I say mm. just without any of those specific uh, signature sounds as i call them i'll just say Mm -hmm. just just imagine that you are trying very hard to be completely understood in your english and that that extra carefulness Mm -hmm. or hyper correctness is Mm -hmm. is often all it takes for that person to give a a credible reading Uh, of of their lines that's really interesting i i don't know that i ever thought to talk about it that way when i was uh teaching but i think that is an issue when uh, English speakers are learning Russian as well. We're intimidated by the, the the alphabet or the different sounds, the palatalization. So we we try so hard that we tend not to pay attention to when a native speaker of Russian might swallow a sound or blend two sounds together, and that helps that that prevents our Russian uh, from sounding as natural. Yes, yes, and it's very difficult when I'm doing the so-called accent reduction. You know, I've got some, I've got two Russian clients at this moment, as a matter mm. of fact, mm-hmm. both, both terrific in their English, but still recognizably foreign. And they probably always will be having come to English mm-hmm. late in their lives, but mm-hmm. I'm getting them closer and closer towards something that's where their accent is not particularly a, a, a liability, but more of an asset. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And um, getting them to understand, to believe me when I say that, you you can swallow and mangle the unstressed mm-hmm. word strings to mm-hmm. an extraordinary degree in English and still be understood. You know? Yes. I, I I didn't want to go to I didn't want to go to work today. Yes. Uh-huh. I, I didn't want to go to I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. I, exactly. Know, get, getting to getting them to believe that that's if they hit the rhythm and the music of, of that unstressed mm-hmm. word string, um, they will actually be more understood than say than if they say, I didn't, I didn't want, I did not want to go to, I did exactly. not want to go to. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. If you like, feel free to uh, direct them to the blog section of the American Voices website, where I've been highlighting uh, instances of connected speech like that, where there is a kind of a blur 
uh, that makes it more difficult to understand, but also from your perspective, it might be something to help them uh, understand that, yes, it's okay to pronounce uh, things in this way. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that's that's true. I think just about any speaker of a language they weren't raised in will be hyper-correct and Mm -hmm. try too hard Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Yeah. One quick example of that that occurs to me now is the uh, a difficult sound for Russians coming to English is, of course, the the and th sounds, yes. which don't exist in Russian. And so they might substitute a z. I think that's quite common. Yes. In, the, in the beginning, they may do this. Yes. Um, sometimes a d sound, a d. Yeah, I think in my signature sounds in my Russian accent manual, I will give both of those possibilities. And and tell them to um, tell the actor to be inconsistent because no mm-hmm. no foreign language speaker is consistent in the way they mispronounce features. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong in one way, and sometimes they get it wrong in an entirely different way. Yes. Uh-huh. One of the hardest ones to, for me to teach an, an English speaking actor is that what we call a dark L. I don't know how, what you call that. Mm. Dark L at the beginning. Look at, oh. look at, look at the little, lovely little. Yes. What, uh-huh. what, what's the technical description of that so-called dark L at the beginnings of words when Russians speak them? Uh, I think in general, we would just think of that as the unpalatalized L. It is, you're, uh, you're right that it is darker, I think, than, than the L is in English many times. Mm-hmm. So you want to have your tongue rather low in your mouth. L, l. I think the tip of my tongue is often up against, full up against the front teeth, yes. and it contrasts with the palatalized l l sound. You know, do, they, I've been, do, do they have that sound at the beginnings of words as well, or is it they, more typically they do. at the end? Yeah, they do, and it's very common. That's one of the challenges of this this opposition of palatalized and unpalatalized. That, for the most part, either one can occur in any position in a word, mm. uh, and it does make a difference sometimes for the meaning, but certainly for the the sound of it. Do you, do, you, been, do, you, do you have a minimal pair with those contrastive L's at the beginnings of words for me? Oh, I should. Let me think. A good contrast might be the word for ice, which is yot, yot. So there's the palatalized L. Mm-hmm. And then the word for boat has the unpalatalized lotka, lotka. Yot, mm. lotka, yot, lotka. And most English speakers would assign those completely different not not variants of the same consonant, but different consonants. They 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 wouldn't mm-hmm. they wouldn't hear that as species of L, would they? Uh, not necessarily, or they might just miss the mark, especially with the the un, with the palatalized one. I've I've sometimes wondered how it is that Russians, coming from a perspective of pairs of consonants with this contrast, how they map that contrast onto the English sounds where we don't really distinguish two kinds of N, two kinds of L. Right. Uh, and so it's interesting that you point out that often at the beginning of the words, the Russians will use the darker L mm-hmm. in an English word, little, even though there are words in Russian that, that begin with the palatalized L in an E sound, E, yeah. E. So they might say little, but little seems uh, quite common as well. Perhaps it's mm-hmm. random or, or varies from speaker to speaker. Am I right in saying that the Russian doesn't have a contrast between uh, list and least, the i, e, i, e vowel? Yes, yes, that is um, another thing that's particularly challenging for Russian speakers. They don't have the same, exactly the same series of uh, reduced vowels. So the i 
sound really does not exist in Russian, certainly not in a stressed position. So they, reach, uh, and, so they reach to the closest thing, which is more of an E sound, correct? Exactly, exactly. So that's very typical. Where, where big then will become big, big, yes. big dog. Yes, and uh, U and O, doesn't, that contrast doesn't exist either, right? Exactly. The U sound, as in book and foot, does not exist in Russian, and so they'll often substitute an U, the book. Look, look, at the, look at the cookbook. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Let's listen right now to Gary Oldman, the quintessential dialect actor, if ever there was one, Gary Oldman. And this is from Air Force One. I'd like you to comment from your perspective on, on Gary Oldman's Russian accent. Sure. Here we go. Here's a little clip from Air Force One. I think the character is Ivan Korshinov, something like that. Okay. When Mother Russia becomes one great nation again. When the capitalists are dragged from the Kremlin and shot in the street. When our enemies run and hide in fear at the mention of our name and America begs our forgiveness. On that great day of deliverance, you will know what I want. What do you think? If you did not know Gary Oldman mm-hmm. and hadn't seen his name in the credits, would you be able to believe that, the, that they had cast a Russian actor? To be honest, I think I would probably assume that it was an American actor who'd worked pretty hard at his Russian accent. Because I guess that's the ultimate goal for an actor to be able to chameleon-like pass as the, as the, with the identity of the character he or she plays. Yes, it's very good. It's, it's, better than, it's certainly better than some others that I've heard in other films. I could perhaps believe that he's Russian. Some of the, uh, what are the features I'm thinking of? His H was quite good. His substitutions of vowels were good. I was struck by the word fear, where he said fear. Good or bad? It's a judgment call. Uh, I might say not good in that it caught my attention to it. And some Russians uh-huh. work so hard to get the, the R sound, which does not exist in Russian, the R, that they, they overshoot. I think, as you were saying, they try very hard. And so a native speaker might say something like fear, fear. On yeah. the other hand, it could be that... Hypercorrect, hypercorrecting the, the, the American R. Exactly, exactly. But that could be because um, several of the Russians that I've known best in the States have had that issue with their R. Um, and it is certainly acceptable to have that kind of a, a lightly trilled, uh, uh, as an African yeah. kind of R, fear. 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 I, yeah, perhaps a little bit less fear, a little bit shorter. Of course, acting always trumps the accent. If, if the actor's mm. thinking about the accent while he or she is doing the role, mm-hmm. then, then in a strange mystical way, that's what the audience picks up on. They, oh, mm. this is an actor trying to convince me that, of the accent and, and parading the accent. But if you go for the message, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's where a dialect coach and a linguist differ, I think. Mm. The, the, the dialect coach can talk to the actor about play the message, deliver the message. Hmm. And, the character and, is most important, yes. Yes, and the, and the accent huh. will recede into the background of our attention. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a fascinating difference, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, uh, Gary Oldman's was, character was very good at W's. I thought a little too good at W's. Hmm. W- w- when, when the capitalists go from the... When the, when the when, 
instead mm-hmm. of that v, 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 what do you think how about the talk about the vw contrast for for russians in english that's an interesting one and, and a kind of a complicated one so the as you know the w sound the glide does not exist in russian the v sound does exist and so you can often hear native speakers substituting a v for a w and for reasons that i've never completely understood to be honest sometimes perhaps as a kind of a hypercorrection I've heard Russians using a w sound in place of a v in English, which in a sense does not make sense because the v sound does exist in both languages. You, you know what I call that? Hmm. I, I call that a reverse mistake. Hmm. It's correcting a pronunciation where no correction is required. Ah, that's, that. that's perhaps the, oh, it's at the root of it then. I think so. Yes, because I have heard that from from quite a few native speakers of Russian, and it was always struck me as a bit strange because they had no problem pronouncing v in in their native language. Yes. So I think that's words like when are are kind of a judgment call that I would perhaps leave to the dialect coaches. We could say vin, that could sound kind of exaggerated. Yes. Um, when could work. Yes. with the k- very careful articulation of the yeah. w, which you might hear from native speakers who are, yes. who are trying very hard. But then I guess that would be an aspect of the character as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Mm. Now we're going to play you a scene from Downton Abbey, okay. in, which, in which we've got... Uh, I, won't tell you, I won't tell you very much about it, but just play it. Okay. I won't tell you who the actors are or anything. Okay. Princess Krogan. Igor. Irina. Shall I introduce everyone? If you wish. But what difference will it make? I would so like to go to Russia. I'm afraid I never have. Then you've missed it. Do you have everything you need? I wear the clothes you had put out. I didn't know if you'd have your luggage with you. I have no luggage. I have no possessions to put in my luggage. Come, my dear. Nothing is more tedious than other people's misfortunes. Let us just be grateful to Lady Gratham. (laughs) (laughs) So, if you didn't know the actors, again, first question is as, as someone who's expert in Russian, could you believe that the two actors were from Central Casting Moscow? Um, I could believe that. I think so. Um, you know, native speakers of Russian always have varying degrees of proficiency with the English accent, but some of the typical sounds were there. The dark L was there. Um, luggage. Luggage. Uh, and that last sound we, is someone we haven't touched on. Uh, Russian does not have the a J sound. And they tend to substitute a com- quick combination of a d with a r, where again that's a quite a very unpalatalized sound. The tongue is quite low for that r, j, j, and so a name like George would sound like George, George and, yeah. and that came out fairly nicely, I think, in his luggage, and a couple of other things. We they're the very clearly articulated r, and uh, I didn't quite catch how. Somebody said, somebody said, uh, think at the end, and I couldn't quite catch with the audio whether it was sink or sink, but it, it wasn't quite right. And so that, that also was convincing for me. Okay. 
great. Yeah, just an indefinable wrongness in, in some yes. sounds. It sells it right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the fact the fact is that that the prince is played by I'll probably mangle his name Rada Sherbegia, who is a Serbian actor. Ah. Oh. Whereas the princess is played by the, the, the very famous British actress, Jane Lapaterre. Huh. So two non-Russians both playing Russian characters. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting that he is um, Serbian. Um, my knowledge of Serbian is very uh, much rusted over but at this point, though I had some in graduate school, and the Serbian language does indeed have a dr sound and a separate yeah. character for it. But I think it's quite, it's, it's somewhat like the way the Russians try to substitute for the just sound. So it's, it's quite unpalatalized. And so that, that helped it be convincing for me. Great. Well, you and I could go on all day long. On <laughs> we this could, topic. I certainly and, could. And uh, I think it's probably time to <laughs> bring this yes. to a close. Uh-huh. Uh, so I will say what a wonderful uh, what a wonderful thing it's been having a wonderful conversation with you, Kurt. Oh, yes, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Professor Curtis Ford. The clips I played during this podcast were used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. Air Force One was written by Andrew Marlowe and directed by Wolfgang Peterson and his copyright Columbia Pictures while Downton Abbey was created by Julian Fellows and his copyright Carnival Film and Television. If you want to bone up on your Russian accent or any of the other foreign language accent manuals I publish, just go to paulmeyer.com. And to explore Professor Ford's American Voices or his YouTube Russian Grammar channel, I provide links to those on the Inner Manner of Speaking webpage devoted to this podcast. And... Don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. Join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs> <laughs>